You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 11, verse 53, through chapter 12, verse 12. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the Lord Jesus who has taught us, who has lived for us, who has lived and died for us on our behalf. All sufficient merit, Lord Jesus, that you have worked on our behalf and you have given to us. You have given us your spirit. And so we pray by your spirit now that we would understand your word and that we would live your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is both a torch night and a lower elementary night. So if you have already checked in and are ready to rock, we'll see you guys later as you talk about this great passage from Jesus in Luke 11 and 12. Uh, As they all leave, uh, most of them are a different generation than you all. I've also, I've, I've always found generational differences pretty interesting, how one generation sees and experiences the world differently than, and yet at the same time shaped by their parents' generation. I am an old millennial. By the way, I'm Nathan. By the way, if I haven't met you, I'd love to say hello to you after this service, but I'm Nathan and I am an old millennial. Uh, I was born in 1983. And depending on who you ask, millennials are born between like 1981 and 1996 or so. And we are called this because we were in our formative teenage years at the turn of the millennium. I graduated high school in 2002. This was post 9-11 when I graduated high school and the world was changing. 
It was like changing over our heads in these early years of the early 2000s, changing from optimism to cynicism, from carefree and careless in the 90s to stressed and anxious. Something that didn't necessarily change overnight, but that is so different between when I was in high school and college and now for you guys who are in high school today or who are in college or just out of college is a cultural view of morality. In the 90s, it was more or less, there's no such thing as right or wrong. There is no objective truth, so whatever is good for you is good for you. Everything is relative. Perhaps you saw the news last night of Matthew Perry's death. That is the worldview of friends. Whatever is good for you is whatever is good for you. There is no such thing as right and wrong. And there is still some leftover residue of that worldview still stuck in our culture today with phrases like my truth and your truth. There's no such thing as objective truth. It's whatever I've come to my understanding of truth to be. But while that understanding of just complete relativity is dying a slow death, it's dying a slow death. Moral relativism is seemingly gone, is out. Like just walk down the hallways of like the Lord of the Flies that is social media today, and you will quickly find that no one believes any longer that truth is relative. In the year of our Lord, 2023, you must have an opinion and you must have the right opinion. You must have very strong convictions about everything. And in many areas, it is good and right for you to have opinions and very strong convictions about many, many things. There is definitely a cultural upheaval that is so violently uprooting what is seemingly or what was seemingly steady that to not care about what's happening around you is to seemingly and actually give in. And yet, so-called cancel culture exposes and punishes the wrong kind of speech, the wrong kind of action, even the wrong kind of belief perhaps even metastasizing in the last few weeks with actual violence, not just words of violence, but actions of violence and even anti-Semitism. Because our culture today is no mercy, only justice. And any long-term strategies of patience and compromise would be a betrayal of our values, would be a betrayal of ethics, would be a betrayal of morality, gender, marriage, anthropology, race, geography, economics, you name it, there is right and there is wrong in today's culture. There is black and white, no nuance, no understanding, no compromise, just right and good or wrong and evil. Living in the 90s was in many ways easier, I think, than living in the 2020s. And I say easier in a mixed way. It was easier on our consciences, just to do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, say whatever you want. You weren't publicly punished or in danger of losing your job for any of these things. But maybe it was harder in the 90s because our consciences were less developed. Because, you know, just do whatever you want. Believe whatever you want, say whatever you want. Today, it's harder to live. I think we are in like constant existential dread and anxiety of on the one hand being told that we must believe and speak and do all the right things and then advocate, advocate, advocate for all of those things. But then on the other hand of living in a reality of the swift sword of cultural justice. And so while I think this brings existential anxiety, there is an opportunity here today that perhaps that we did not have in the 90s or in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. Our consciences today, I think, are more pricked than ever. We intuitively know that moral relativism is dying and is dumb. 
Like, we all knew this in the 90s. We just weren't really willing to, willing to confront it, that two contradictory positions and worldviews cannot be right at the exact same time. And yet the burden of right and wrong speech, the burden of right and wrong action and belief is getting heavier and heavier and heavier on our shoulders. And then the gospel of Jesus comes. And the gospel of Jesus, I think, might be today more sweet than it has been in decades. The Jesus who comes and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now that was a very long introduction and a very long setup to say that generations come and generations go. Values come and values go. Cultures come and cultures go. But one thing that has remained the same is the human heart. Throughout different cultures, throughout human societies, the heart is the same. And we load up ourselves with the burden of external righteousness, of appearing to be good and right on the outside. We load the burden of external righteousness on ourselves of being the right kind of person. I am the right kind of person. And you all must see it and believe it. And then culturally, others seek to multiply that weight by heaping even more on us. Every culture is the same. And yet perhaps more so today than ever in our culture. In Luke 11, Jesus goes after both of these things with real anger. He hates it when we do this to ourselves and when we do it to others. When we load being the right kind of person on ourselves and on to others. So we're going to think about these things in two initial headings where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. The first two things of the external righteousness that we put on us, we put on ourselves, and then the external righteousness put on us by others. And then, in what you heard Rebecca read from in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, we're going to lastly consider the internal righteousness that is put in us. So let's move. We've got a lot to do here. The external righteousness that we put on, that we put on ourselves. Let me read here Luke 11, verses 37 through 41, since I had Rebecca skip over this section entirely. Uh, Verse 37, Luke writes this, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was, was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. All right. So Luke says, while Jesus was speaking. Speaking what? Well, everything that we considered last week, when he was saying that this generation is worse off than Nineveh those who rightly heard Jonah's preaching of the coming judgment and repented. We thought about how a response to Jesus is not just good if and when you have a felt need that you think that Jesus can fix, but that a response to Jesus is demanded. It is required, not because of who you think he is, but because who he actually is. He is the word of God. He is the prophet of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is God. And so, lo and behold, here at the beginning of this next section, things are looking pretty good. A response is demanded. Everything that we thought about last week. And here we see a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Like, hey, this Pharisee has heard everything that we've thought about. The response is demanded. And so the Pharisee invites Jesus to come to his house. Perhaps he wants to sit and dine and learn at Jesus' feet like Mary was at the beginning or at the end of chapter 10. But then verse 38 moves on quickly. The Pharisee 
was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Jesus apparently came straight into the house, ignoring the wash basin on his way in. He was going to use dusty, perhaps even dirty hands to eat his dinner with. And the Pharisees freak out. Why do they freak out? There is no law in the Old Testament law that demands that Jesus wash his hands before he eats dinner. There are lots of dietary laws, and there are lots of laws about cleanliness, but these laws are never connected. They are never put together in the Mosaic law. Here, like other areas of seeming morality, the Pharisees have added to the law. They have added more and more to the law. It's like as if the law today for us was, do not drink milk. And then I come in and I tell you, look, I know the law says that we cannot drink milk, but because I know that you might possibly be tempted and we know that what others might think of you, not only don't drink milk, you need to avoid the dairy section at Smith's altogether. Just don't go back there. Avoid it. And then later, my kids, when they're adults, their generation says, you know what? In fact, just don't go to Smith's at all. There's milk in there, avoid it altogether. And then my grandkids' generation comes and they say, you know what, best to avoid all grocery stores altogether. In fact, avoid all things related to cows. These are generational additions to what God has asked and required. There are fences and fences and fences around the actual law. Jesus wasn't keeping far enough away from the actual obedience that the Pharisees wanted him to obey, the pretend obedience of the Pharisees' liking. And so verse 39, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for caring about his external cleanliness, his external righteousness, while ignoring the fact that he was actually and entirely clean, inside and out, righteous all the way through. Meanwhile, they are overly concerned by their external cleanliness while ignoring that they are internally corrupt. They are internally unclean. They are full of greed and wickedness. And so Jesus says, you fools. Did he, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He's saying, look, there is actually no difference. There's no divide between the inner and the outer person. Why in the world would you care about merely remaining externally righteous while you are ignoring internal righteousness? Staying clean on the outside while being corrupt on the inside is a fool's errand. Instead, verse 41, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, this is a notoriously difficult verse for translators and for commentators to understand and to interpret, but I think what Jesus is saying here is give alms, that is, worship with generosity to God and for the good of others with respect to the inside things. Worship with respect to the internal things, the inside things. Care more about being a person who moves, who acts, who lives and loves from the inside out rather from the outside in. Jesus is absolutely following in the prophetic tradition here that Isaiah and Amos and Micah and Zechariah had confronted Israel in generations past and in centuries past that of following the rules with no concern for why the rules, why the law is there in the first place. Why is the law there in the first place? To know God, to please God, to demonstrate his character, to become like his character, to love your neighbor, to be a people of justice and mercy and righteousness. And yet how often are we people 
just like the Pharisees, loading up ourselves with all sorts of rules and demands and expectations which the Lord does not require. Of course, there are things that we can giggle at. You think about movies like Footloose or something. No dancing, everyone. Thou shalt not play cards. And there is the ultra-cynical definition of a Puritan that I've shared with you before, that a Puritan is someone concerned that someone somewhere might be having fun, right? And we think that perhaps what Jesus is actually inviting his people into is saying no to fun and saying yes to dourness and just being serious the whole and rest of your life. And yet, I think we perhaps don't have that all the way perspective of what Jesus is demanding and asking of us, but we can, in the same way, just think that the Christian life is just a simple list of thou shalt nots and thou shalts. Do not smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do. Seriously, though, like, perhaps the Christian life, to our understanding, is don't do illegal things. Do not get drunk. Do not do drugs. Do not look at pornography or have sex before or outside of marriage. That is the Christian life. And conversely, there are corresponding thou shalt. Thou shalt go to church as often and as much as you can. Thou shalt read the, the, the Bible. Thou shalt pray before eating dinner. Thou shalt give away 10% of your money. Thou shalt talk about Jesus with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. And that's what the Christian life is. Now, as we'll see in just a second, we should absolutely do and care about all those things. All of those thou shalts and thou shalt nots. The problem becomes when we load up, when we put on ourselves all of these rules for ourselves as the means of knowing God. We know God by obeying God. We earn our place and position of acceptance before him by obedience. That my joy and my only means of assurance in life come if I am doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Not because I am deeply abiding in Jesus, not because I know him and love him and want even more of him and that I find joy in obedience, that I am understanding that walking by the Spirit means that my conscience is strengthened and because of my internal love for God, my external life just follows behind it. Rather, I constantly feel the rot of the inside. I feel the rot of my own heart. And because I'm putting so much emphasis on my external obedience and righteousness, when I fail, when I sin, I am absolutely crushed. I am spiritually devastated. Why am I still sinning? Am I even a Christian? Christians are supposed to obey. My confidence is in my obedience rather than the finished and completed obedience of Jesus in my place. And so Jesus calls the Pharisees and us to repentance on our emphasis on the external. Woe to you, Pharisees, he says in 42. Immediately, he wants to clarify and for them to understand that they are within and part of the evil generation that he has called to repent just before this. They are not standing outside with their arms crossed saying, yes, yes, all those lawbreakers out there, they're the ones that need to repent. No, he is saying, you, you law keepers, are the ones who need to repent. Why? Well, three reasons. Verses 42, 43, and 44. They make sure that they're tithing their little tiny herbs for temple use while, again, ne neglecting justice and the love of God. They want public affirmation and recognition for their righteousness and spiritual seriousness by getting the best seats at dinners and at the synagogue. 
Verse 44, they are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. That is, he's saying that if you buried someone without marking the grave, and then according to the law, someone is actually close to that dead body. They, they walk over a recently buried dead body. That person actually becomes ceremonially unclean by its prox- his or her proximity to the dead body. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are like death, and you are inviting people into more and more uncleanness. And yet, like the Pharisees, we, one, put a heavy emphasis on the external while ignoring internal love for God. We, two, want to be observed and recognized and celebrated for our righteousness. Like, it is not enough for us to be noticed and commended by God. We want to be noticed and commended by others for doing the right things. We want recognition and praise now. And we'll spend more time on this in chapter 14, where Jesus really goes after the Pharisees for wanting the best seats of honor. But we, like they, third, place an emphasis of our salvation and assurance on our external obedience by placing the emphasis of our knowing God on our ability to obey his laws or ours. And by doing so, we lead others into a place of death. And maybe not just in our thou shalts and thou shalt nots. We talk about in our membership class the lifelessness of the expression, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. This is like saying, feed the hungry always, and if necessary, use food. At its heart, this is getting after the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is getting at, the the inward theology that saves should move outward into outward and observable mercy and love and kindness, doing good things and in kind and good deeds for our neighbors. But what kind of gospel are we preaching to our neighbor if we never talk about the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and only merely take the meals, organize meal trains, mow their lawn, or doing, helping with their yard work? That is the gospel of just being nice. The gospel requires very clear words of repentance and of salvation, not just of kindness. Anything less, and we, like the Pharisees, lead others into a place of death. Or that the gospel is really about advocating for the right social or political policies. It's about correctly opposing the wrong ideologies. All those things can be good. These things can be right to care about. What good is it if you ignore actual love for God and then you are leading others into thinking that Christianity is just about opposing the wrong ideologies? And so like the Pharisees, we need to hear and to feel Jesus' direct arrow to the heart the spiritual MRI showing that the problem isn't just superficial, it isn't just external, it's not just a skin problem that needs some ointment. There is a cancer inside, and anything other than deep internal work will only be treating symptoms. We must be healed from within. But the problem isn't just with us. In the demands and attention that we place on ourselves externally, the external righteousness that we put on us, that we put on ourselves, there are cultural pressures heaping even more demands, even more guilt upon us. And so secondly now, the external righteousness put on us. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. The lawyer or the scribe is saying, hold on now, Jesus. Now we interpret the law in the exact same way that the Pharisees do. So if you are insulting them, you are insulting us. There's an assumption of righteousness here saying, wait now, hang on. If they are bad, we are bad. And we know that we aren't bad, so you need to lay off. 
But it's like Jesus is saying, just wait till I get going. Just like with the Pharisees, Jesus has three woes or curses for the lawyers and the scribes as well. What are they? Verse 46, he says, woe to you, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Verse 47, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Verse 52, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Now, let me ask you a question. If I were to walk around today on the UNM campus, if I were to go around and walk around with a microphone and ask the everyday average American, if I were to scroll through most of the Christian blogosphere and social media feed, who would most people say that Jesus most often rebuked? Who was Jesus most often confronting? I think with passages like this in Luke 11 in mind, most people would say that Jesus was very often and regularly frustrated and upset with the ultra-religious, those who took religion a little too seriously. I've just finished listening to Bono's autobiography, and near the end, in an otherwise pretty amazing book, Bono talks about how the kind of people who most frustrate him are those who are so sure about their religious convictions and beliefs. For him, true spirituality is a balancing act of faith and doubt, and most importantly, self-doubt. And while there's some benefit, I think, in self-doubt, he gets really annoyed by those people who are really into their religion. And so when we talk about modern-day Pharisees, who is it that immediately comes to your mind, immediately comes to your imagination? The modern Pharisees. That guy is such a Pharisee. Who is that guy? I think, not certainly in your imaginations, but perhaps likely. Who is that guy? That guy is such a Pharisee. He's probably a Southern Baptist pastor. He's maybe a little overweight, gets pretty sweaty. He definitely has a Southern accent. I won't say anything more about that. He is against drinking. He is against premarital sex. He is against abortion. He might well, he probably is racist. And if we do a little bit more digging, well, we probably find some more unsavory things about him. Likely even illegal things in the shadows of his life. And no doubt the racism and other disqualifying sins would certainly reveal the kind of external, internal discontinuity that Jesus has come to rebuke and which he hates. Whiter culture, I think, is then pretty quick to associate someone's convictions about premarital sex and abortion and then wrap all of those things up with racism and southernness as well. And that guy is such a Pharisee. Here's the thing, though. Jesus was not against the religious he wasn't. You'll often hear things like, God doesn't want your religion, he wants a relationship. Even though, well, first of all, that sen sentence is not in the Bible, and there are very clear verses like in the book of James, where James says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows. Yes, the world says, do that, care for orphans and widows. That doesn't harm anyone, that's actually helpful. But then James goes on to say, and keep oneself unstained by the world. 
Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers were very much all about religion. They were very much all about meeting with God's people. They were very much about going to church regularly, coming to the communion table together in repentance and in faith regularly. They were all about knowing and memorizing and consuming and digesting God's word and then letting it play out into all aspects of our lives. They were very much all about caring about the church's doctrine, the practice, the ordinances and discipline of its people. And yes, keeping one unstained by the world, or as we've defined worldliness before, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers were very much against worldliness that, what, that is whatever makes holiness seem strange and what makes sin seem normal. Very much against that. Jesus is not against those who seek to live holy lives and to invite others into that as well. We just read and thought about last week in Luke 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I think the world would say, ah, that guy's pretty religious. Those who hear the Bible and want to obey it, I don't like all that. Don't like all that religious Phariseeism. But Jesus is not against that. If he's not against the religious, those who take God's word seriously and then try to live it, who is he against? Who are the Pharisees that he is against? Who is he opposed to? Who does he rebuke? I think this is who Jesus ongoingly rebukes. It's not just someone who is very concerned about living rightly and obeying the Lord. Jesus rebukes any person or any system that seeks to establish human righteousness apart from Christ. He's ongoingly rebuking any person or any system that seeks to establish human righteousness apart from him apart from the righteousness of Christ. This is his point about the prophets in verses 47 through 51 that we kind of skipped over. Jesus is essentially saying God has been sending prophets to deliver his wisdom from the very beginning. And from the beginning, his people have been rejecting wisdom and killing his prophets. But what are the prophets preaching and confronting? In every generation, what do the prophets come and preach and what do they confront? In a very weird move, Jesus in verse 51 says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Israel has been rejecting the prophets. Would you ever think of Abel, son of Adam, brother of Cain? Would you think of Abel as a prophet? I don't think I would. All Abel did was offer a pleasing sacrifice to God, and then he got killed by his brother as a result. There's not a ton of prophetness going on there. But that's, the exact, that's exactly the point. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 that the reason Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because it was done in faith. Abel understood that on his own, his sacrifice was unacceptable, but that God would accept it on some other grounds apart from his own righteousness. On the grounds of God's holiness and God's righteousness, not on his own, but done in faith. That God, because he is righteous, he will accept this. And so a prophet, according to Jesus, is anyone who testifies to God's way of righteousness. That as Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham wasn't considered to be righteous because he did righteous things. He is not accepted before God because of his obedience. If that's the case, he'd just be getting the wages of what he has justly and rightly earned. But he did not earn God's righteousness. It was a gift that depended on the righteousness of God. Paul says in 4.13, in Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So again, who is Jesus confronting? 
both in his day and ours. He is confronting any person or any system that seeks to establish human righteousness apart from the righteousness that comes through faith. And who does this today? Who, persons or systems, establish or seek to establish human righteousness apart from Christ? Oh boy. I think we have this image that if Jesus lived in Rome instead of Jerusalem, he would have merely gone, gone after the Jewish religious leaders in Rome. Or if he were to walk around four or five centuries later in Rome, Jesus would only be confronting. He would only be going to find and confront those pastors or those Christians who are not being faithful enough. Instead of, like Paul did in his day, calling both Jew and Gentile to repentance, those who knew God's word and those who did not know God's word, calling both Jew and Gentile to repentance for different but the exact same reason. And what's the exact same reason? For trying to find righteousness, for trying to earn acceptance into God's favor by some other means apart from Christ, by their own working of external human righteousness. And so let us count the ways of the guilt that gets put on us individually and societally so that if you would just believe differently, if you would just behave differently, if you would just advocate differently for the better and right things, if you would protest differently, you would have your sin absolved and finally now reach some level of righteousness. Here's a minefield. I'll walk through it. That if you would believe differently about vaccines, one way or the other, you would be the right kind of person. If you would believe differently about race, that on the one hand, there is no such thing as race or racism, or there is literally everything today is race or racism. That the only way of Christian faithfulness is to vote exactly like I do because my policies and understanding of how God wants to work in this world and how God wants to legislate, all of the things that I have come to understand and believe are spot on. Nailed it. I know God's will. That if you are some combination of the following— that if you are white, if you are male, if you are Christian, if you are rich, if you are heteronormative, you are fundamentally and inherently in a status of oppressing others. A place of, dare I say, you are born into a state of original sin. And the only absolution is to begin to confess the inherent sinfulness of those very identities. Now that I have made everyone angry and everyone is feeling very uncomfortable and squirming a bit, and nor am I trying to say, look how we're all now victims. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say, do you see how exhausting all of this is? Like everything is so exhausting. It is so tiresome trying to figure out, wait, what is the right thing that I should say and do and believe in this situation? I could have gone for 20 more minutes coming up with all the ways in which our culture from the so-called left or for the so-called right says, this is who you must be to be the very kind of right person. This is what it means to be the right kind of person. Just this morning, I saw a good and godly pastor yesterday weigh in on like the internet controversy of the day. He was just saying something about today's internet controversy and one commentator simply said, you are not a good person. <laughs> like if you believe or say the wrong thing, you are now fundamentally and excluded for being the right kind of person. You are not a good person. And this is what Jesus has come to confront and rebuke. There is no identity of being the right kind of person that does not first come through him. 
the righteousness of Christ, which gets us to our incredibly shortened last point. The verses that you heard Rebecca read from in chapter 12, the internal righteousness put in us. Not the external righteousness that we put on or that is put on us, but the internal righteousness that is put in us. I'm a little okay breezing through this last section because so much of what Jesus says here will be repeated and reiterated from different angles in future chapters, including more on next week, anxiety and the God who cares for you more than birds in the middle section of 12. But here's what Jesus is saying in verses one through 12 of chapter 12. Jesus is saying to you, be free from the expectations and demands that you put on yourself and that are put on you by others. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy for Jesus is almost never, sometimes, but almost never. Hypocrisy for Jesus is not saying one thing and doing the other, like the way that we use the word hypocrisy. Like we say, like, what a hypocrite. Like this guy has been teaching about financial integrity for decades, and then we find out that he's been embezzling funds or something like that. What a hypocrite. Hypocrisy for Jesus is almost always someone who does actually the right things, perhaps only the right things. But this person is doing the right things for the wrong reasons. The person is doing the right things from the wrong motivation. There is no inward or outward alignment. There is no God-honoring love and God-honoring motivation that fuels the external action. And so Jesus says there will come a day when the great reversal will come, when the evidently upside down gets seen for the right side up that it actually is, when the most private conversations will become public, And when those who have been deceiving people and heaping all sorts of unattainable expectation and demands on their spiritual shoulders, they themselves will be sent to a place of spiritual judgment. And so Jesus says to you, do not fear them. Do not fear those who have no ability to condemn you. Do not fear those who have no ability to save you. Even if they do have the ability to condemn or, dare I say, like cancel you publicly in this life, what is the only thing that you should fear? Who is the only one that you should fear in this life? Fear God. Fear God. Not in a way like be afraid, be very afraid of God. No, but revere, have ultimate respect for the judgment or the condemnation, not of others, but of the one who is actually able to condemn and judge, from the one who is actually able to save and deliver. Fear no one else. Verse eight, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, initially, this sounds like the kind of fear-inducing, works-dependent, external righteousness that we have been saying is heavy on our shoulders. Like, we hear Jesus and we, we hear him say, you better be with me or else. If you deny me, you're out. Don't mess it up. If you get put in a situation where you have to speak for me and affirm me, you better do it or you're condemned. And there is some very serious and heavy gravity to this verse. We've talked so much about this not being like an actual like false dichotomy. It's either you're with him or you're against him. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 10, he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Again, this is a notoriously difficult verse to interpret, but let's just think about the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas. 
in a moment of fear, in a moment of self-preservation, Peter will deny Jesus, not just once, but three times. And what happens to Peter? Jesus doesn't come to him and says, you're out. You didn't speak for me when you had the opportunity. Done, gone. Jesus returns to him in grace and in kindness and in compassionate rebuke, not once, but three times. Feed my sheep, Peter. What does Judas do? Judas is not convinced that Jesus knows what he's doing, that Jesus isn't doing what he thinks Judas thinks he should be doing, that maybe Jesus really isn't the long-awaited Messiah that I thought he was. I don't think he's dependable to follow and trust and give my life to. He rejects who the Holy Spirit is testifying about who Jesus is. So we may rephrase verse 10 to say that anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus, in a specific act of rejection, but then later repents, will be forgiven. It is not your actions or your words that save you or condemn you, remember? It is not your boldness in an opportunity of testing that will save you. It is Christ alone who will save you, who himself was put in an opportunity of testing and did not sin. But those who remain in a permanent state of the rejection and the message of Jesus, who remain in a permanent state of the identity of Jesus as revealed to by the Spirit, will actually not be forgiven, will remain in a state of condemnation. In other words, if you are in a place of reflection, if you are in a place of humility and repentance, you can't accidentally, accidentally or in a one-off moment of fear accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the way that brings permanent condemnation in which Jesus is describing here. It is only the work of Christ that saves. And your faith in the promises of the work of Christ that are then credited to you that saves You guys, the gospel of Jesus is just so sweet. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Now, while the world may seem like it's rejecting Jesus in a way like it never has, just watch the news and it's discouraging. I'm actually optimistic. Maybe the tide has been going out for so many decades, it is now finally poised to come back in. In your own life, in your neighbor's lives, in your friend's lives, I think we are so ready for a relief from the burden, for a relief from the cynicism, from earning our righteousness, from performing our righteousness, not only being the right kind of person, but making sure that everybody else believes that I am the right kind of person. It's exhausting. Because here's the thing, you are not the right kind of person. You are not. No matter how much you try to perform for others and make others believe it, you are not the right kind of person. But there is one who is. And the entire story of the Bible is both demands for holiness that we humans are not able to keep, but then God, the holy and the righteousness, the holy and righteous one, giving that righteousness to undeserving people. Not as demands on the outside, but as a gift to the inside that he might from the inside out then make us more and more into his holiness and into his righteousness. When from the inside out, because of deepening love for God, holiness becomes a delight and not a killjoy. Holiness becomes not just I'm going to do all the things and say no to all the things that I really want to do, but instead what I really want to do is know Christ more. And obedience becomes joy. That of becoming or taking on an identity, identity of belonging 
rather than an identity of constant disappointment, of a life of persuasive invitation to others rather than an imposing burden, of building up walls of division and separation between others and the glory and the love of God. We've read before a few times, usually at the beginning of one of our services, Ray Ortland, a former pastor in Nashville, he would nearly every week open their services with a call to worship that says this. And perhaps to all of you, right now at the end of our service, as we're about to come to the table to remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ, hear these words, to all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whomever would come. This church opens wide her doors. This church offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name to which we belong and the name to which we come. Not our own names, not our own performative righteousness that others might believe, that God might believe that we are the right kind of people, but we come just merely hanging on to the, to the, the drapes, the robe of Jesus who drags us in on his righteousness. His and his alone, all sufficient merit, firm in life and death, the joy of my salvation shall be my final breath. When I stand accepted before the throne of God, I'll gaze upon my Jesus and thank him for what? Not our obedience, but for the cross that then motivated and transformed and built our obedience. Not for a righteousness, but out of joy and thankfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of mercy, a God of patience and loving kindness, that you are a God of faithfulness, faithfulness to your promises, faithfulness to your character, faithfulness to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, might we be people who are trusting in this work more and more, that we are a people of rest, that we are a people not of anxiety, but of trust. And that as a result of you, by your spirit, putting righteousness in us, that we are a people of obedience, that we are a people of righteousness from the inside out because of what you have done, not because of what we have done. Help us to love your word, to obey your word, not to earn our place, but because we already belong. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your life and death and resurrection. Might it be more and more the absolute center place of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. We're so thankful for all these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.